Have you ever had this happen right in the middle of a really good movie? That's the little mint that somebody was unwrapping. That's the chips that somebody was opening. I told them to crank it up. It kind of almost exaggerated so much you couldn't tell what it was. You know what I'm talking about? You're sitting there in the movie, and someone's got this little candy wrapper, and they just keep going on and on. And just when you think they're finished, they go on some more, and then maybe a little bit more. And you're sitting there grinding your teeth, and you're thinking, how much longer is this rattle of the paper going to go on? You finally forgot the plot of the movie that you were interested in. Your eye starts twitching, and, and, and you're about ready to just ex- explode an artery uh, somewhere in the movie theater. It happens, and uh, it happens when there is a lack of social awareness by people who seem to have no sense of how they are impacting the people around them. Now, I hope this hasn't already happened to you this morning, because it happens in church. And so perhaps someone has already unwrapped one of those little things for you, uh, behind you or beside you. And for those of you who are thinking about doing it a little bit later in the service, and for everybody that has experienced what I was talking about at the movie, everybody that's been annoyed by that, all together at one time, let's just tell them, stop that. Knock it off. Stop rattling the stuff. Stop acting like you're the only one in the movie house. And so on and so forth. Can I get an amen on that? Come on. You know, so the Lord have mercy if it's a box of Tic Tacs with about 15 left in it and they're shaking it out. You know what I'm saying? So, so as funny or frustrating as that may be, the Apostle Paul in our study of Philippians uh, continues to give us helpful tools in the area of making our witness better, stronger, uh, helping us with our attitudes and uh, even our conduct as believers in Jesus Christ. So I want to pick up where we left off last uh, Lord's Day uh, and finish verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2. We're going to read that in just a moment. But there are some really important insights that Paul gives us in this letter to the Philippian church, and uh, it helps us when it comes to our responsibility as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ to develop a greater sense of spiritual self-awareness. Would you just repeat that phrase with me? Spiritual self-awareness. One more time. Spiritual self-awareness. You know, it's really tough. It's a tough job for people who, who have to do interviewing and hiring and all that sort of thing. Uh, when, when they uh, hire uh, people who uh, uh, appear to interview well, but once they get on the job, they just have no sense of self-awareness and how they, the kind of atmosphere that they are creating around them. And so Paul is saying, as believers, we need to develop a better sense of spiritual self-awareness in terms of how we relate to one another in the body of Christ and then how that goes outside of the church uh, to the outside world. So let's, let's take a look at it. Ch- chapter 2 of Philippians, and we'll begin reading uh, verse 12 through verse 18, which is what we, we tackled last week, but we didn't go all the way through. So here we go. Paul says to the Philippian church, which he, he really loved them a lot, and he thought well of them. 
So he's not picking on them, but he's, he's, he's admonishing and encouraging and, and fine-tuning this wonderful church that he loves. So then, my beloved. So you know he loves them. You know he's excited about them. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's an interesting little phrase there. We're going to pause there. We spent a little time on that last week. Work out your salvation is a little confusing for some people if you read it at face value. But we need to understand, we understand it. And if you want to pick up last week's DVD, and I encourage everyone to pick up last week's DVD. It's an unusual anointing that God gave us last week. But work out your own salvation. Another way to say that is if you're saved, prove it. Prove it by your speech, by your actions, or by the things that you don't do that you might have done otherwise. Work out your salvation. In other words, you know you're saved. You know you've given your heart to Jesus Christ. You know you've invited him to come and live in your life and be Lord and master of your life. So now, prove it. Prove it by how you speak, by how you act, by how you behave, by the attitudes and the different things. And he said, it's so serious that you need to do it with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because God's watching and it matters to God. A fear and trembling says to me, God, this is serious. This is really serious for church folks, the saved folks. For it is God, verse 13, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Wow, we spent most of our time last week on that one right there. And it's like grumbling or disputing. It's so easy for us to do that. So that you will prove. See, there's that proving. Prove your salvation so that you will prove to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Well, you know, I, I wish we could kind of get off of this subject. I was telling the prayer group in there before we came out for the service. They pray with me. And I said, I, I'm ready to change the subject from grumbling and complaining and all that sort of thing where we're getting instruction. You know, I'm sort of ready to get on to a different subject. And if you're ready, don't say amen. Don't raise your hand. But I'm just telling you, look, there's other stuff that we could talk about that's a lot more fun to hear about. Amen. But he's not letting the Philippians go yet. So when you're, when you're going through the whole counsel of God's word, you have to just stay with it until it plays itself out. So, so here we find Paul. He's urging Christians to develop a greater spiritual sensitivity to how others see us. So I'm to develop a greater sensitivity as to how you all and others, not just in this church, but in any Christian church, or even in the outside world, how, how they're perceiving me. 
Now, there's a wonderful Christian leader of the past. He's gone to be with the Lord now. Some of you read his devotional material and some of the things that he's written. His name is F.B. Meyer. And he once wrote something along this line that is really sobering. Uh, sobering thoughts about the need to develop a stronger sense of spiritual sensitivity in how we come across to other people, especially in the body of Christ. And that's who Paul's really talking to in uh, the church at Philippi. This is, this is what F.B. Meyer wrote. Let me just speak it to you. He says, and I quote, It is almost terrible to live with these thoughts pressing on one's heart. That one can never speak a word, never transact a piece of business. That one's face is never seen lighted up with the radiance of God or clouded and despondent without it being harder or easier for other men to live a good life. Every one of us every day resembles Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made other men sin, or we are lifting other men into the light and peace and joy of God. No man lives to himself, and no man dies to himself, But the life of every one is telling upon an increasing number of mankind what a solemn responsibility it is to live. Unquote. Wow, that that was sobering when I I read that. And And it made me just once again realize why, in fear and trembling, Paul says, pay attention to how you are speaking how your body language is working, how your attitudes are being reflected, especially in the body of Christ, and then even out and beyond the church doors. Jeroboam that he, that he referenced in his quote, Jeroboam was the first king after, the, after Israel split into two kingdoms, the southern and the northern kingdom. Jeroboam was the first of the northern kingdom. And his influence, once he became king, was not a good influence because he tempted through his decisions and his influence, he set up idols. And God had commanded the people, no idols. There's only one God. We sang about it. There is none other, no one higher than you, God. You are the only one true God. And Jeroboam set these idols up again, tempted the people to bow down to idols, and it hurt their hearts. It caused them to sin. And so his example and his influence caused a problem. For other people. And so what Paul is saying is don't let your life, how you speak, how you, how you go in and out of the body of Christ, how you relate to the community at large, don't let that be a negative to people who are looking at us and knowing that we are some kind of religious people, so to speak, and we should be doing better than what we do sometimes. I think that's what he's driving at. And so there are several important truths that we can pull from this passage and I think a main point for our consideration is how we relate to others is important to God. That's it. How we relate to others is very important to God. And it's especially important to God how we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ. Last week, Paul instructed believers not to grumble. He instructed them not to criticize one another. He said that it was destructive to the unity of the body, the unity of any church, and it's the one thing that can bring any church down. So to help us avoid doing that, he gives us three reasons. Let me give you three quick reasons that Paul gives us 
for why we should limit our complaining. I, I said limit for a reason, because I, I don't think in this life it's possible to, to get rid of all complaining. Uh, you know, I, I, it just ain't going to happen. But, but what we should be doing is, is by the power of the Holy Spirit working on limiting complaining that is uh, uh, not, not uh, Christ-like, that is not uh, uh, being able to be interpreted properly. Uh, you know, there's differences of opinions, but they don't have to turn into negative criticisms. And that's what Paul is really talking about. So let's take a look at verse 15, first of all. And here's verse 15, should be on the screen for you. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So biblical reasons to limit complaining against one another. All right, here's the first one. For our own good. It, it, it's important to be careful what comes out of our mouth, especially to brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we behave in the body of Christ. Why? It's for our own good, Paul says. Pro- proving that we are blameless and innocent. It, God wants us with fear and trembling to prove to Him that we are blameless on this and that we are innocent of speaking things that we should not speak that are not Christ-honoring. So if we take a look at two Greek words there, blameless in the Greek means without blemish. There's no blemish in the words that I speak to you in the hallway, on the phone, in an email, in a text, when I see it downtown, when I see it at the gas station, see it at Meyer or Walmart or wherever it is, that there's, that, that there's no blemish in how I'm speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the second word there is innocent, that we will prove not only that we're blameless with no blemish, but that we are innocent means not being mixed with the ways of the world. In other words, we don't have one foot in, in one camp and one foot in the other camp. There's a the mixture. And so, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, when I, I've told this story before, but when I came out of the institutional setting working with uh, delinquents, uh, they had kind of a prison talk. And it took me a little while to get that prison talk. Uh, I'm not talking about vulgar words, but just prison talk, street talk kind of stuff that uh, once in a while it still pops in in my, uh, my, my words from time to time. And he said, don't let your words uh, uh, sound like the words of the world. And so I would say, I would caution us, and especially our young, our young people that are really dialed into the social media you know, you need to really be careful the words that you use. I, I think what we found out this week, some things that none of us really totally realized, is, in fact, I had a professor from the university on Facebook just yesterday late said, I, call, I got a hold of Facebook and I asked them to give me my whole Facebook record. And he said, you would not believe everything they had recorded. Every single person that ever do it did a hit on my Facebook page. Every person that I ever did a hit on, everything I looked at, everything. I, I mean, it's like everything was absolutely recorded and shoved right back at this professor. So you, we, need to, we need to be careful the words that we use. Uh, you know, the, the things that have reference to God... That, that causes the culture to have any less respect and regard for the name of God. Like, oh my God. To use that callously. It's easy to do. I, 
you say, doesn't God know I don't mean anything by that? Well, he, he, probably, he knows your heart. Of course he knows. But that doesn't mean you should do it. It's not, it's not productive. You know, all things may not, you know, be, be sin, but they may not be productive for the kingdom. So think about the words that are so not mixed with the ways of the world. When we pull back from saying or doing things that are critical of others in the body of Christ, here's what happens. When we pull back from that, we might even be thinking something. But when we pull back from saying what we're thinking, not everything that we think needs to be said. Some of the things we think may be 100% accurate. Some of the things we're thinking, God might even agree with. But it doesn't mean that it's supposed to be spoken. Not everything is necessarily supposed to be spoken. We have, we have an editor who came into our lives when we invited Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Amen? He is called the Holy Spirit. We have a Holy Spirit who will help us edit our speech and our attitudes and all that sort of thing. So rattling the paper at the movie is what the world does because it is neither concerned with what others think or it is dull and insensitive to how others perceive our behavior. It's either they, they don't, maybe they got bad hearing. I don't know. Maybe that's another excuse. But sometimes I look around and I can tell by their age they probably don't have bad hearing. You know, just not paying attention, don't care, or living in their own world. I don't know. So you and I may have a legitimate complaint about someone's behavior, even in the life of the church. Sometimes that happens. And God may even agree that somebody needs to make some changes in how they're living their life for Jesus. But it is in our best interest to continue proving to God that we are learning spiritual discipline about our tongue and about our behavior and about our attitude. So we don't let just any words fly out of our mouth. Sometimes we don't let them fly. But sometimes we do. Can I get an amen? amen? Sometimes we do. So we don't let just any words or attitudes in body language show themselves because they can take away our desire to be blameless and innocent before God. And it is in each Christian's personal benefit to prove to God that we are different from the world. Can I say that again? It is in each Christian, each person here, each person listening, internet, or ever hears this, it is in each Christian's personal benefit to prove to God that we are different from the world. It's one thing to be saved and belong to heaven, but Paul says it's another thing to personally prove to God that we are spiritually aware of how we impact the body of Christ as well as those outside the church who are watching our example. And then he goes on to say that we are temporarily planted in an atmosphere that is spiritually toxic. Does anybody know that when you go outside these church doors, there's a lot of toxicity out there in the world? It's rough. It's tough. It'll eat you alive if you're not careful. He says, you are children of God above reproach in the midst of what kind of a generation? What kind of a, 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 of a toxic environment is it? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as light, as, as hope. As, as a way to make it through this life. So, so we limit our grumbling and our complaining and our criticizing because of the fact that it benefits ourselves. It's good for us to do that because it's proving that we are blameless and that we are 
uh, without blemish before God. Now, there's a second reason that, that Paul says it's good for us to control or watch uh, about our grumbling and our, our criticizing and that sort of thing. And so, secondly, he says it's because of the, our concern for the lost. He said a, a reason for us to be disciplined with our grumbling and our complaining is because of our concern for the lost. In other words, we live and are observed by a perverse generation. If you look at the Greek words there that are the active words there, you have the word for crooked. That's scolios. Anybody know what scolios means? You know anybody has scolios of the spine? It's crooked spine, right, Kirk? It's crooked, curved. It means curved. And the word for perverse generation is diastrepho, and that means distorted and corrupt. Corrupt. So he said, so he's saying, this is a curved, distorted, corrupt generation that you and I are living in. And it is the disciplined tongue, unmixed with the evil of the generation, that Christians are to display to the unsaved. And that becomes, for the Holy Spirit, the magnet that the Holy Spirit uses to draw people, to win people, to win lost people, because they see us behaving differently. A motivation to speak differently and to act differently in this toxic environment, is so that the lost can see Christ in us and be drawn to Him. Can I get an amen? Now, this is meat and potatoes. This is not entertaining. And it's not the most fun for me to trudge through. Uh, there's other topics I would like to talk about. But I would encourage you, and we've got time. We're off to a good start on timing, wouldn't you say? So let's push through this and let's learn something that God wants. He put this in here for us and for a reason today. Every encounter with another person becomes an opportunity to prove we care about lost people. Let me say that again. Every encounter with another person becomes an opportunity to prove that we care about lost people. Now, let's take a look at... Then he goes on to say something else about uh, why why to uh, uh, minimize our our, uh, critiquing, our, our criticizing, our grumbling. Verse 16 holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Let's take a look at those first two words there, holding fast. Uh, There's debate on what this means. Uh, And guess what? I'm not going to clear it up for you because I don't know. But I'm going to tell you what the debate is. So, And it's from the Greek. There's debate in the Greek, what this really is intending to mean. Some say that it means remaining faithful to the instructions that God has given us. Holding fast. Some of your versions says, hold firm. Hold fast to the things that you have been taught. Don't let them go in this perverse and evil generation. Hold fast to the things Jesus has taught you. And guess what? I think that could be absolutely correct. But here's another thought. Some say that it should be translated this way, holding forth. That comes from offering uh, in the Old Testament, in in Scripture times, uh, offering someone a a glass of wine or or something along that line that was appropriate, that you're you're holding it forth. You're not holding it firmly because you don't want to give it to them. You're, You're holding it forth. And that there is a sense in which uh, we are to hold forth uh, witnessing and the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and to a lost world. I, and 
I can't tell you which one of those you should say is what it means. But that's why you may see in the translation that I put up here, New American Standard, it says it one way, and maybe your version says it a little differently. And I don't know which one's correct. I I guess if you ask me what I really think is I, I think we should hold fast to our faith, and I think we should maintain a witness to a lost world at the same time, and I I think they're both right. What do you think? I think they're both right. Well, then he says a third reason not to grumble and criticize brothers and sisters in the church as well as those outside the church is, number three, for the encouragement of spiritual leaders that their work is not wasted. For the encouragement of spiritual leaders that their work is not wasted. You know, we understand this when we have children, those of us who do, who've raised kids. We, we ran hard when they were young. Uh, we grew weary providing for them at times. Uh, there were times when we put our own needs uh, on the back burner and we did our best to give our kids the very best opportunity that sometimes none of us had. And the choices some of them have made, uh, sadly, uh, to deny Christ, to walk away from the things of God, uh, to live lives that are self-centered and self-willed and not training their children to love the Lord and be engaged in spiritual activities through the life of a Christ-centered church. Guess what? Guess what? It feels like it has all been in vain if we will never see them again in heaven. It feels like all that effort for the kids that we've raised, as hard as we ran, as hard as we worked, as hard as we invested, it seems like it's all in vain if we don't get to see them in heaven one day. It's a tragic feeling. Never let that happen for the spiritual leaders God has permitted in our lives. Don't let it happen, Paul says. Never let it happen. Commit to lifting. Commit to encouraging. Commit to helping your spiritual leaders by praying for them, speaking or writing words of encouragement, refraining from constant complaining and grumbling, and offer to help when we're asked. Any Sunday school teacher who has ever taught in more than one church over the years Uh, they want to hear that the class that they taught back at the other church is still going, that it's vibrant, that it is still producing spiritual fruit. The class that you worked so hard with, the class that you taught for a number of years, and you moved, maybe you retired and you went some other place to live, or you took another job, and someone stays in touch with you with your past church, and you say, how's my Sunday school class doing? Every teacher, every leader wants to look back on where they've been, and say, praise the Lord, it is still bearing spiritual fruit for the kingdom of God. It didn't get squashed by the devil just because I left town. Amen? Every spiritual leader, every every honest one, no pastor who has ever served more than one fellowship, and we have some pastors in the room here today who have served more than one fellowship, no pastor who has ever served more than one fellowship over the years wants to hear that the church they were a part of has undergone a split or has had to be closed because there was no interest in keeping it alive. It's as if all the hard work, all the effort has been in vain and it has amounted to nothing for God in the end. Now, that's not totally true, but it feels that way sometimes. 
It just feels that way. What a terrible thought. So Paul says we can avoid grumbling and complaining, criticizing and impeding unity by remembering these three things. When we, when we retard, limit, complaining, grumbling, and being critical, it is for our own good because we're to prove ourselves blameless before God. It is for the concern of the lost because if we don't do well, the lost are not going to be magnetized toward Jesus. And it is for the encouragement of spiritual leaders who labor amongst us in the Lord, in the vineyard. He says we're to run hard, run hard, but not without purpose. And we can see all this again from the Greek. I'm going to give you just a couple little tidbits again as we march on through this. Uh, In the Greek, to run, he said run, and that's treko, treko. You know, globe trekker, he's always walking around the world and showing us some new sites of different places to visit and whatever. Well, how many of you have a Trek bicycle? Anybody got a Trek bicycle? Okay, got a couple who know a good bike, okay. Treko, to run. Kopiao, kopiao means to grow weary running. You know what? We can all go out and, and take a little run around the parking lot and not grow weary. Because we make the pace such that it doesn't strain our charity. We can also go out there and run hard and be huffing and puffing and be wondering if we're going to have a heart attack. He says, run, but run hard. Paul says, run, but don't just run, run hard. And guess what? Don't run without purpose. Kinos, that's empty and futility. Don't run with, it, with emptiness. Run, run with a goal in mind. Run, run with a purpose in mind that you are, you and I are doing our very best to live blameless before the Lord. Not criticizing, not grumbling, not, not uh, disputing unity in the body of Christ, but run hard that way. Hard enough to wear yourself out. Run with a purpose. And that purpose is to love. That pur- purpose is to serve Jesus. That purpose is to make Him known to the world. To make him known to our neighbors, to make him known to our coworkers, to make him known to our family members, to make him known to our children and to our grandchildren, and to make him known to our friends. Run hard. And so stay away from grumbling, criticizing that sort of thing, because it will impede your running. Now, let's put the family in the picture for just a moment. Paul would tell us to work hard for our kids. You got kids? You got grandkids? Paul would absolutely say, work hard for your kids. He would tell us to sacrifice when necessary for our kids. Paul would suggest that we make provision for our kids as much as we are able for the day when we're not here anymore. And if we're able to help lay some provisions aside for our kids to help them along life's way, that that's a good thing if you're in a position to do that. And Paul would suggest teaching them to be self-starters. And Paul would encourage us to teach our children to be uh, honest, that they would be kind in how they do their business, that they would stay on the positive side of life. Paul would suggest that we do all of those kinds of things and more for our kids. But to do all of those things and more for our kids and leave Jesus out is empty. It's empty. It's futile. It's doing all the right things and leaving out the most important piece that makes it eternal and never-ending. Leaving out the most important piece. 
Running hard so our kids are set up to win in life is futile when we have left Christ out. Can I say that again? It's hard. But running hard so our kids are set up to win in this life is basically futile in the end if we are doing it, leaving Christ out of the equation. Who closes churches that leaders have run hard? Paul worked hard to get the Philippian church going. Paul worked hard uh, to get the, the, the church going at Colossae. Paul worked hard at Ephesus to get the church going. Paul worked really hard. Uh, I, I'm sure in the life of this church, in the history of this church, long before I got here, there are a number of pastors and leaders and assistant pastors and Sunday school teachers and lay leaders who have worked hard, hard, hard to get this church healthy, active, and making a difference in this community. Let me ask you a question. Who closes churches that leaders have worked so hard with the laity to build? Who closes churches when spiritual leaders have run hard to build up the church and then they look back some years later to see how the children have done as they've grown and had the reins in their own hands and had the steering wheel uh, in their own hands? Sometimes the picture is not very pretty. Just like when our children or our grandchildren grow up and don't serve Jesus, it's not very pretty. What if I told you who closes churches? It's not the banks that close churches because they don't want the negative press. Banks don't want negative press of closing a church. Trust me. I know bankers. I've been with bankers. They've told me that. They don't want to close a church ever. It's not the community leaders that close churches. They know churches are positive for any community. They know that. Who closes churches? It's not the denomination. The denomination is in the business of starting more churches, not closing churches. It's not even the devil that closes churches. He's after every church and has been after every church to close, and most of them are still open today. Amen? Amen. So he's not that good at closing churches. It's the people who weaken And often close the church. It's the people who close the churches. It's the people. By not paying attention to the teachings that God has given to keep unity, to keep a spirit of vibrancy, spiritual vibrancy alive in the life of the community, in the life of the church. By complaining, by grumbling, by becoming divisive, and not being committed to the unity and mission and purpose of the church. It is the people who close them. That's what happens. So, man, I wish I didn't have to talk about that. Because I don't think that's going on here. And I don't expect that it's ever going to go on. But it's important, Paul says, for us to understand that's what happens out here in the world. If we don't take this teaching as uncomfortable as it makes us sometimes, if we don't take it seriously. Now, verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, Philippians... I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Now, let's talk about that drink offering thing. What is that? A drink offering. <laughs> we did some toasting at the reception last evening. Uh, lemonade, lemonade, you know. So. <laughs> A drink offering signifies and celebrates, really, in this context, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He came, he did his duty. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. 
He ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, and he did his duty, and he says, now it's on us to carry out the work. The, the drink offering is about the finished work of Christ on the cross. So here's a word picture for us. Let me, let, me, let me paint a word picture for us, if we may. Just put this in your mind. You have the children of Israel, okay? This is Old Testament now. And they were, they were commanded to do works for God. And some of their acts of works of service to God was to make sacrifices to Him. Many different kinds of sacrifices. And let's just say the sin offering, this is the sacrifice for sin. So you've got this uh, sacrifice going on. The people get this uh, animal. Uh, they bring it uh, to the priest. The priest puts it on the altar and uh, starts the fire. And the, the animal is being burnt for the sins uh, uh, that the people have committed and that God would pour out some forgiveness for them, lay that sin, that pain, that, 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 that uh, penalty upon the animal that has died and is being burned. And so as the animal sacrifice for sin is burning on the altar, there were times when the priest would take, <clears throat> would take this uh, drink offering, this, this uh, wine in most cases, pure wine, the pure, not the adulterated, not the, not the watered down, but the, but the pure wine, and would take that wine and would pour that wine on top of the burning animal on the sacrifice. Now, there are many commentators, and you can read about this. There's plenty written about it. But many commentators believe that the wine, listen to the symbolism. It's a word picture. That the wine represents the blood of Jesus Christ, who would eventually come. Now, remember, this is Old Testament. Jesus hasn't come yet. But that the, that, that wine represents the coming blood of Jesus Christ, the unblemished lamb. And it is poured out on that, on that uh, sacrifice, on that offering. And Jesus is eventually going to be coming to save the people from their sins. And then one day there won't need to be any more animal sacrifice because Jesus paid all of the penalty for sin. Praise God. And so Paul, Paul tells the Philippians that his life in prison. Now think about this. Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting trial, writing this letter back to the Philippian church. And it's like Paul telling the Philippians that, look, I'm in prison. I'm locked up here. All the troubles that I'm having spreading the gospel, even the potential that I could die when I go to court, it's a possibility the Romans would put me to death. They were, they were like Jesus being poured out unto death in order to complete our forgiveness. Now, of course, it's not the same thing. Of course it's not. Only Jesus could satisfy uh, God's requirement for the sin debt that we all owe. But uh, Paul's work, his, his, his uh, being harassed, his being beaten, his being thrown into prison, his being harassed, his being lied upon, uh, his hard circumstances, the shipwreck that he's been on, the snake bite that not, could have killed, would have killed most anybody else except God saved him. All these kinds of things for the sake of the gospel. He said, it's like my life is being poured out as, as a sacrifice, as an offering. And so, so, uh, Paul is being poured out now. His sacrifice of love for Jesus is now being poured out on the Philippians faith so that they will stay strong in Jesus and remain united. He says, avoid grumbling, avoid criticisms that destroy unity. And so the picture is that Jesus has completed this work on the cross. The Philippians are to complete their work for Jesus. The Lake Viewans 
are supposed to continue their work for Jesus. The Philippians are to complete their work for Jesus. Paul is then pouring his life and his service for Jesus upon the sacrifices of the Philippians because as they testify of their love for Jesus, they're being harassed and the enemy comes against them. And the enemy wants to create uh, disunity. And he, wa- he wants to, to retard the, the effectiveness of the church there. And so what happens is when, when, when this uh, wine in the Old Testament is poured upon that sacrifice, that wine representing the blood of Christ is poured upon that sacrifice, you know what happens when you, when, when you roast in a weenie? We're about ready to start doing some of that again, aren't we? If it stops raining. Is it nice enough? We can light the fire. We can get the fire pit going. Amen? And you're sitting around the fire pit, and you got the weenie on the stick and the whole thing. And, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, your, your hot dog, you know, especially if you've got a grandchild, falls off into the fire, you know. And it's roasting right there in the coals. And then someone comes over and takes some well, wine or whatever liquid it is and pours it on that hot dog that's in the fire. And what happens? Paul says that that pouring, that drink offering poured on that sacrifice of love that Jesus made, that blood poured upon that, causes that sacrifice that was special to him to... And all of a sudden you can see see the steam, the smoke rising up. And the scripture says when that happens, God smells it. And it is a beautiful aroma. To God. That's a beautiful thing. The sizzle on the total sacrifice creates this smoke that rises to the Father and it pleases Him. You see, our refusal to grumble, our refusal to criticize in the church is a part of our sacrifice to God because it's a whole lot easier to let somebody have it. Isn't it? It's a whole lot easier. Makes you feel better for a little while. Unless God then convicts us after we get home think about it, and then we have to apologize and ask forgiveness and all that sort of thing. But it's a lot easier to just let people have it. Our refusal to grumble and criticize in the church is a, sacri- it's a form of sacrifice to God. The efforts of pastors, the efforts of teachers in the body of Christ is like wine poured out upon our sacrifice of love and obedience to Jesus. And the sizzle produced is a sweet aroma in the heavenly places that pleases God. So apparently, there's a great deal of joy in the camp when the church acts in this manner. And then verse 18, he says, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So in other words... All this teaching that, you know, sometimes we think about, oh, I wish you could get on a different subject. It's a hard subject to talk about and about critical things and about whatever. He says, actually, there's a lot of joy when you, when you step into this world. So it really makes people happy. There's a lot of gladness in the camp when we all do this. Here's something that I just want to give you a quick quote in closing. It is difficult for self-centered worldly believers to understand how missionaries can live for years under primitive, demanding, and often dangerous conditions, yet still maintain their joy. Through it all, they rejoice because, like Paul, 
and the Philippians, they offer their lives as a continual sacrifice to God. They have learned that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. They have the same attitude as Peter and the other apostles who, after being flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You can read about that, unquote, in in Acts chapter 5. So Paul says, you know, I'm sharing my joy with you. Because, you know, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on your sacrifice of faithfulness. And, and you know, I think there's a way that your Sunday school teacher can, can be a drink offering poured out on your sacrifice of discipline and faithfulness when you practice the discipline of, of what God says about being self spiritually self-aware. How do I come across? How am I perceived in the body of Christ? So I close with this thought, with appreciation for the life of missionary Nancy Hubbard. Many of you are new to the life of the church, and so you you do not recognize that name. But if you were to go back and observe our mission station back there where the screen is and take a look at the missionaries that our church supports through something called Commission on Missions, and we're, we're going to be having a high moment in that coming up in May you will see the name Perry and Nancy Hubbard who have for many years been partners in the life of this church to far and distant lands, Panama of recent. Nancy has fought a cancer for 13 years, I think, something along that line. And we got word that uh, just after Perry had uh, gotten to a a destination where he was very far from home was informed that her latest test showed that the cancer was uh, coming back. This happens to a lot of people around the world. And some of you have been impacted by this personally. Some of you maybe are dealing with it right now and you've had a cancer and you're taking treatments and right now you're in remission or maybe you're not in remission anymore and you're having to fight it some more and you've got people praying and you're doing everything you can to try to beat this thing. But she got word that her tests weren't doing looking so good and the cancer was in some places, some, some important places in her body. And so they sent out the prayer call and uh, we began to, to pray. Little did we know that it was like just a few days. And God took her from this place and took her to his place. A lot faster than what we thought. We were all shocked. All of our missionary people that are paying attention to our missions, and I hope all of you are, were absolutely chagrined at how quickly Nancy left this world. So quickly that her kids who were en route to Panama, they were not able to make it in time. Thankfully, they were able to talk to her by phone, but not in time to be there in person. Nancy Hubbard, missionary, wife of missionary Perry Hubbard, poured her life out as a drink offering upon the work of Christ all over the world. Her life was poured out like that wine upon the animal sacrifice. Her life was poured out. Every believer, every church 
Every Christian that was influenced in any way by this woman is pure wine, pure wine poured out upon what Christ has already done on the cross. Did you catch that? Her life is the drink offering poured out on what the finished work of what Jesus has already done. And, you know, you just picture that word picture in your mind and you picture her life as being that wine poured out upon that sacrifice. And you think, and there went this, this smoke, this steam, this smell. And it's not an ugly smell. It's a beautiful smell to the father. And he said, man, I like that. I like how this woman lived. And the sizzle from that sacrifice made God smile. Wow, what a beautiful thought. What, what a reason for us to be disciplined in how we behave. I remember two years ago, Perry and Nancy were able to be with us in our missions conference. And after the meal, uh, we invited them to come into our home. And we sat around the table And we listened to their beautiful heart, their beautiful spirit, their beautiful words, their life-giving words, their passion to, to share the gospel of Jesus wherever they went and literally all over the world. And now she has given the very best of herself in a drink offering poured out for the cause of Christ. So how do they stay up? How do they stay happy? Why, why didn't she, she didn't get to live very long compared to a lot of people. Uh, why would she want to live in those kinds of circumstances in a third world country and denied many of the pleasures? There's no sitting on the beach for the rest of her life. There's no you know, sitting back and letting others go to war. She stayed after it, even when she didn't feel well. What, what, an, what an incredible testimony that is. So is it too much for us to, be, to curb our tongues? Is it so, so hard for us to be kinder to one another? Is it so hard for us to go apologize to somebody? If we've given them a nasty look or a, a you know a stiff a, a stiff lip or smile or no smile or or ignored us in the foyer didn't want to speak to us walked across the other side of the room so they didn't have to go beside you people do stuff like that in the church they do it all the time hello people do it not just here everywhere every church I've ever served all the time it happens not everybody does it and so. May we be encouraged to go the extra mile in saying, God, discipline my tongue, my attitude, my everything, that one day maybe I may be asked to be poured out on a sacrifice of love to you, Father. And let it just bring joy to everybody involved. As painful as it is for this husband to live however many days he has without his life partner, I'm sure that he has tremendous joy, like Paul was talking about here. Tremendous joy. Because his wife lived a godly life. And because she was poured out as a drink offering that was a sweet aroma to God. Wow. What a tremendous testimony. Let's stand. Lord, help us be more spiritually sensitive to others. Lord, help us to be more spiritually sensitive to others. Lord, we're coming into a time where there's a lots of business happening in the life of the church. We've got budgets to work on. We've got ballots to put together. We've got people to get in place and in offices and all these kinds of things. Lord, help us to be spiritually sensitive 
to how we behave, how we come across to others. May we always put you first and may the Holy Spirit be free to discipline our tongue, to discipline our attitude, to discipline us, Lord, that we would be ready, if asked, to be poured out on that altar and that you would find it sweet in the heavenlies. Help us to do it. Father, if there's somebody here today, and there very well could be, who is not sure that Jesus is their Savior, who's not sure that they're, they're going to heaven whenever this life is over, help them, help them to want to just pray this prayer with me from the bottom of their heart. Dear God in heaven, I recognize that I am incomplete without you. I recognize that I have sinned and fallen way short of what you wanted for my life. I realize there's nothing I can do to change that fact that I'm guilty. And I, when I think about the story of Jesus as best I understand it, and that they, the Bible says he came and he, he was perfect and he had no sin, and that you accepted his life in payment for mine, but he had to die to do it. He had to be scourged. He had to be cursed at. He had to be uh, beaten. He, he, he had to hang and have nails driven through his hands and his body, and he had to bleed, and he had to give up his life for me. Why wouldn't I want to love somebody like that? And why wouldn't I want to take advantage of his forgiveness and salvation? So I ask you, God, come into my life today and save me from my sins. Be my Savior, and I will do my best to let you be Lord, Master of my life, until you come and call for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Father, I pray that if someone prayed that prayer, and no doubt someone did, would they just reach out and let us know how we can pray for them and help them and encourage them in their new journey with Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us, help us to take these truths to heart. They're not the easiest things for us to talk about because we all say things we should not say from time to time. And we all think things in judgment sometimes that we should not be judging in the first place. And, and we all step over the line from time to time. And we know that we do it. And anybody that says that's not me is not being honest with you. And so I pray that you would refine us. Now, we just, we're the people here at Lakeview. We know you mean this for every church and for every people who call Jesus their, their master. But right here in this place, would you just continually refine us, sharpen us, uh, cause us to have sharp, edge, sharp edges in the sense of focus and that it's not fuzzy, but that we are clearly seen not only by one another in the body of Christ, but clearly observed in this community and wherever you send us that people can see that the Holy Spirit is guiding our lives. Forgive us when we have failed and we often will and, and, and just Get hold of us, God, when we do that. Don't let us keep living in dullness like, like unwrapping a candy wrapper in the movie house and driving people crazy. Lord, let us be sensitive to how we are coming across in the body of Christ and help us, Holy Spirit. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being in us. And I pray, God, that you will just continue to richly dwell in the life of this church and that you will empower us to just take on whatever responsibilities you have laid in store for us until Jesus comes 
Bless this church and this people. Give us your favor. Grant us the desires of of our hearts according to your pleasure. Protect us from the enemy and send us out to serve. And all God's people said together, amen and praise the Lord. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. Stay away from the raindrops if you can do it.